Morning, BCC. There we go. You can hear me now. You may not know this, but there is another Birmingham, and it's over in the state of Alabama in America. And on an ordinary Sunday morning in mid-September 1963, the ground floor of 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, shook with a sudden and terrible explosion. Fifteen sticks of dynamite had been planted underneath the steps on the east side of the church by four members of the white supremacist terror organization, the Ku Klux Klan. Four young innocent Sunday school girls were killed and 22 others were injured in the explosion. The names of the girls who were killed were Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. It was a truly horrific race-hate crime which made international news and it received condemnation right around the world. Now, nearer back in Wales, in the UK, a stained art glass creator called John Petz was really horrified when he heard of this tragedy, and he quickly offered his services to create a brand new stained glass window and install it in the church to commemorate the girls. At the same time, the editor of a Welsh national newspaper called the Western Mail started a front page funding campaign to raise money for the new window. And within a very short space of time, this fundraising campaign uh, had gathered momentum and it had received donations from very many people in Wales and from beyond. And in the space of about two years, Pets had designed and created and delivered his window using the funds that had been raised. And this stained glass window is the artwork that you can see hopefully up on our projection behind us. If those guys can put that up, that would be great. Uh, and also on the postcards on your seats. Um, we also took the liberty of sending that to your WhatsApp if you're connected to us on WhatsApp. And also, it's at the top of our YouVersion notes today. Uh, if you go into your YouVersion Bible app and click on events, you will see our live service there. And this picture is at the top of those notes. Do feel free to keep one of these postcards if you want to, and we have some more on our info point. The window was dedicated as a gift from the people of Wales to Alabama, and the words given to the people of Wales are in the red strip that you can see along the bottom uh, of, uh, of the, the, in the glass of the window at the bottom there. It was then dedicated and installed over the rear balcony of 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in June 1965. I really believe that the creative arts are helpful in bringing us fresh perspectives. They are very helpful to us in processing difficult things. Uh, and they can often give us insights and a way of seeing things that can help us in our spiritual reflections. And there's some aspects to this amazing stained glass artwork that John Petz has created that uh, I would like to, to talk us through, uh, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me this morning. Um, ethnically, Jesus would have been Jewish, of course, we, we know that. But in presenting him as a brown-skinned man in this window, Petz identifies Jesus directly with the victims of this absolutely appalling injustice. The window reminds us, uh, those of us who are white, not to be so arrogant in trying to make Jesus in our own image. It reminds us all to fight hard against that tendency and it's a tendency we all have, no matter what color we are, which is to find that what we ourselves look like uh, to be the most familiar and the most comforting. 
It's one of the reasons that what we have at BCC is so very precious. There's a, there's a kindness and a warmth and an acceptance of one another that rises above that tendency. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on every nation under heaven in Acts 2 was not exclusively upon one kind of person or one color of people. And heaven is not full of one kind of person or color of people. John uh, shares a vision of what heaven is like in Revelation 7, 9. He says, Therefore before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Jesus was sent for every single person on the planet. Throughout history, universally, regardless of race, tribe, ethnicity, or skin color. Uh, can I add as an aside that whilst I really do love the painting The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, and it's very well known in white European culture, let's just speak to the elephant in the room about that painting, which is that it's not at all culturally diverse uh, in, uh, and representative of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and it also presents the disciples as kind of old fogies with beards and white hair, and you know, they weren't that, that old, can I just say in Petz's stained glass window, if you look at that, uh, just above Jesus' head there, there's like a kind of rainbow-colored halo. And it's about his head, and, and we know that the rainbow symbolizes God's covenant promise to humanity after the flood, doesn't it? But perhaps it also affirms that Jesus' thoughts are continually coming out of his mind towards people, uh, and they're about people no matter who they are and what their color and, and, and even they come from his place of suffering. You can also see a statement at the bottom of the window in quite large letters there. It says, um, you do it to me. And that statement uh, comes from the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. In that parable, you may recall uh, that the phrase, you, you did it for me, or you, you did for me, comes as praise from a king who represents Jesus for compassionate works done by people who know Jesus personally. Matthew 25, 40 says this, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. But in Petz's window... However, that phrase takes on a new meaning. Instead of compassionate works, the words now have the meaning, this truly monstrous thing you did to the people of this church, you did it to me. That's what John Petz is saying. And the window declares that you crucified Jesus all over again if you persecute someone of a different skin color to yourself. We tend to think today of an icon as something that we double tap on our phone or our tablet or our computer, like a fame, or maybe a famous celebrity who is a role model. But the word icon also has another meaning. It means a painting, usually painted on wood, of Jesus Christ, uh, or perhaps of a very a saintly and holy person uh, considered very you know, venerable by some Christians. And icons are very characteristic in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. They're not so much in the Protestant church. So you see them in churches in Syria and uh, Greece and Russia and so on. And originating from the same city that we mentioned last week where we talked about the Nicene Creed, where it was debated and agreed, Istanbul, uh, there's a particular Byzantine icon. And Byzantine is the Roman word for Istanbul uh, back in their day. And this Byzantine icon of Jesus is called utmost humiliation. And the head of John Petz, uh, the head of this man in the stained glass window there, it hangs intentionally at exactly the same angle uh, as this Byzantine icon. It speaks of the incredible sorrows of Christ at the horrible nastiness and the wretched sinfulness 
of, of mankind in the world. The transverse beam of the cross, which kind of runs left to right uh, across the window with its dashes in it, suggests the flow of many of the fire hoses used by the authorities to disperse street demonstrators across the deep south of America uh, at the height of the civil rights protests in the early 1960s. And Birmingham, Alabama, uh, had a, had a city, uh, as a city, had a public safety commissioner called Eugene Bull Connor. And he was called Bull because he was notorious for unleashing dogs and turning high-powered fire hoses on demonstrators. You might also notice that the depiction of Jesus' hands and feet in this window are unusual for a representation of the cross. They are not nailed into position as they were originally. Now, this is just my interpretation, but perhaps in a pose that has no nails, what Petz is trying to say is that Jesus identifies with all the different punishments and all the wrongful deaths that people have ever received or undergone. It's a pose that also maybe suggests Jesus kind of blown up by an explosion, reflective of the awful bombing that took place that September, in September 1963. Birmingham, Alabama was a city that in those days had the nickname Bombingham because of all the bombings, uh, bombings perpetrated by white supremacists against black groups. Petz himself as the creator of the window that says that, that one, hand of the Je- uh, one hand of Jesus, uh, this one up here to the top left as you look at it, is, is held up in the kind of universal sign of halt or stop against the demonic forces that put him there. And then he says that the other hand, as we look at it to, uh, to the top right there, so yeah, kind of, sorry, the hand is like that when you look at it. The other hand is held out. And it, it's like an invitation. It, it's extending almost a handshake. Maybe it's even the beginning of the father's hug to us, inviting us in. You know, the father in the parable of the prodigal son. The presentation of Jesus' clothing in this image suggests a prison suit or something a chain gang might wear. In other words, the kind of clothing that somebody would be forced to be worn, not your own choice of clothes. And it identifies the image with all those who have had to uh, undergo forced labor, all those who have ended up uh, under lock and key. And as we look at those clothes, we remember how Jesus was actually naked on the cross and soldiers underneath him cast lots and threw dice for his clothing under the real cross of Good Friday. The feet of the crucified man in the stained glass window seemed to trail off into gloom as though the the world through which Jesus has just walked is unspeakably dirty. And yet, as he is lifted up, In the center of the picture, he is bathed in this divine light, and we think of the God who lives in unapproachable light. Now, it's possible to see uh, this window for yourself at 16th uh, Street Baptist Church. And if you go to, if you ever decide to visit the Civil uh, Civil Rights Institute Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, the very final thing you will see as you walk around all the exhibits, after you've done that, is you will see through just a, a standard window, you will see through the museum window across the park, and on the other side of the park, you will see this church in your, in your sight line. And you're encouraged uh, by the museum to, to pay the church a visit. My message today is called Scandal, and John Petz's window reminds us all 
that Jesus knows what it's like to be treated completely unfairly, to go through the utmost of humiliation, and to be lost to the world in completely unjust and totally scandalous circumstances. John Petz's response to what happened is to point to the cross, and rightly so. We do not worship a Jesus for whom human suffering is academic or theoretical, or who just commands, do as I say, but not as I do. We worship a Jesus who came and said, watch what I do, and you copy it. In permitting himself to be on the receiving end of as physical a destruction as those poor little girls received, somehow Jesus identifies with them and their families. And in his death, he stands beside them in theirs. Ultimately, what Jesus did in submitting to the cross was to journey right into the center of an absolute cesspit that represents the very worst of humanity, goaded and provoked on by the devil, and he allows himself to be pinned there in excruciating agony. And because of this, the cross gives Jesus the moral authority to come directly alongside all other injustices, offenses, and scandals and say, I know what this is like. I have lived through it. I know what you're going through. I understand it. I get it. I felt it. I stand with you, says Jesus from his place on the cross, in the hardest things that humanity can devise. Think for just a moment, if you can steel yourself to do so, of some of the highly offensive and scandalous events that have happened to people in the news in just recent times. This is a live case, but we have a a man called Chris, uh, I think it's Chris Carla, who has been shot unarmed in our country. What are we doing shooting an unarmed person? Think of the execution of the unarmed uh, civilians in the Ukrainian town of Bucha uh, in April of this year, where it seems clear from all the reliable sources that the, the Russian soldiers uh, per uh, perpetrated a war crime. People had their hands tied behind their backs with cable ties, and they were shot at point-blank range. And this happened in nothing glorious whatsoever. Back streets, allotments, garages, and basements. In going to the cross, Jesus stands right beside each and one of every one of these poor souls. Think of the 39 Vietnamese people found frozen to death in the back of a refrigerated container lorry in Grays in Essex in 2019. What an absolute travesty of uh, treatment of people. What a waste of human life. That should never have ever happened at all, ever. In going to the cross, Jesus stands right beside those 39 Vietnamese people. Think of three-year-old Alan Kurdi from Kobani in northern Syria who washed up face down and drowned dead on a holiday beach in Turkey in 2015 after his family tried to escape from Syria and go to Greece. In going to the cross, Jesus stands right beside that little boy and his family. Just spend a moment thinking for yourself, what is the greatest injustice that you yourself have ha ever had to face in your life? Maybe you're, you're somebody that's sitting here that's navigated a horrendous situation in your past. Absolutely and totally and utterly unfair. Christianity teaches us that we have to put that on our shoulder 
and carry it up the hill towards Calvary behind Jesus carrying his scandalous setback. That's what, that's what being a follower of Jesus means. There is no atrocity too great, no depravity too awful, no justice so extreme and no scandal so outrageous that means that Jesus cannot say to us all from the cross, I know what you went through. Because he can. Because he did. He went through the cross and he knows what it, what it took to go through. And he knows what you've gone through. And what you, you might have to go through. And he faces it squarely on the cross. And he promises to go through it with us. So we have this thing in our team on a Thursday lunchtime. We have team lunch together. And afterwards we have a thing called creative content planning. And we talk about our messages. And uh, those of us who are uh, kind of penciled in to, to do a, a couple of Sundays from there. So they've got a week and a bit to think about the, the inputs. Um, we, we talk about what we're going to say, uh, and uh, sometimes our chats are deeply theological. Sometimes we talk about stories or resources or things that we want to bring uh, to those messages, and people bring great ideas. It's a great opportunity to share things. Uh, and so in preparation for this message a couple of weeks ago, I asked the team what they thought about the idea that the cross could be offensive, that the cross could be a scandal. Why is it offensive? Why is it scandalous? Now, we have the, uh, the pleasure of one of our younger congregation, uh, Alicia Simons, with us. Uh, you're just over there, aren't you, Alicia? Give us a wave. Thank you. And uh, she has been helping us doing administration in our food bank before heading off to university. Uh, I think it's next week now. Um, and she's been doing that since the middle of June. And can I just take a, an opportunity publicly to say what a wonderful job you've done, Alicia? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Great job. Now, after I asked this question about the cross recently, Alicia comes to me and she says, Pastor Nick, can I explain to you why the cross is an offense? And I'm like, yeah, tell me that. So I'll come to your desk, and so I visit her at her desk, and she tells me three correct reasons why the cross is an offense and why it's a scandal to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to the Romans. And I'm going to just use that as an excuse to share what she said with, with all of us because she's right. It was an offense to the Jews because God is the all-powerful Lord of the universe and the maker of heaven and earth, and there's no way that he could or that he would or that he should send a Messiah who would voluntarily submit to his own defeat through crucifixion. That is totally unthinkable to the Jewish mindset. They think of a, a Messiah in terms of somebody like David who would take over the world and, and, and lead them to military victory and get rid of the Romans and be an amazing king. But the amazing king they were sent didn't do that. And so the cross to the Jewish mindset is offensive. They do not get it. They would not believe that somebody like the Son of God, even if he could exist, would even take a path of humiliation and suffering. It was an offense to the Gentiles because how could pain and suffering possibly be any kind of path to fulfillment in life? Surely, pleasure and self-determination and fulfillment and perhaps even a little sprinkling of hedonism are the way to get through life. Certainly not self-sacrifice and, extre and extreme pain. And the cross was an offense to the Romans because they'd specifically designed it to be that, to be as offensive and as humiliating as possible. In fact, the cross was something that in Roman society you did not talk about. It was taboo in their society. Crucifixion was designed specifically to be degrading and scandalous. It, that was its purpose, 
It was designed to make a person die slowly by nailing your ankles into a, a bar below and then nailing your wrists into a crossbeam. What you were consigned to was having to, you basically slip down because of the pain of, on, your, on your wrists. And then as you slipped down, you started to asphyxiate from your ribcage because you can't hold yourself up and breathe properly. And so what you do is you push yourself back up on, the, on the, the metal pins that are through your ankles. And then that's really, really painful, and so you slip down again. And then you move up again, and then you slip down again. And all the while, you're rubbing your back, which, by the way, has often had a flogging with 40 lashes of the whip against a rough wooden cross. And on top of that, you're doing that fully naked, fully uh, uh, available to be seen by absolutely everybody that wants to see it is the most humiliating thing you could possibly imagine. You hoped that the soldiers would dislocate your shoulder uh, out of its socket on both sides so that you would fit on the beam because that way you would die much quicker. The beams were very wide and some people's shoulders and arm length didn't, didn't fit it. And so they'd yank your shoulder out of socket and actually that was a grace to you because you would die faster. You can't pull yourself up that easily with a, with a shoulder out of socket or both shoulders out of socket. You hoped that that would happen to you. How terrible is that to hope for an injury in order that you would die more quickly? You prayed that crows or birds of prey would not come and sit above the cross and peck out your eyes. You literally prayed and hoped that that wouldn't happen. And people would sometimes take days to die. Crucifixion was especially configured to be as humiliating and as insulting as possible. Degradation of human beings was its total and sole purpose. Even punishments, severe punishments that get mentioned in the Old Testament, like 40 lashes, had a limit on them. Uh, it says in Deuteronomy 25.3, um, you, you, you have permission to, uh, to, to strike your brother with a whip 40 times, but it's um, no more than 40 unless your brother be degraded in your sight. Now, we think of 40 lashes as unthinkable and horrendous, but the wording in that is that you have to understand that the person you're punishing is your brother, and that, that there is a limit, and that you mustn't degrade him so far. Crucifixion stood well beyond and below that. They did degrade. They were humiliating, and they weren't something that God accepted at all. Crucifixion was so gruesome that eventually Rome itself phased it out. They realized it was awful. And we need to, what we need to grasp afresh this morning is that the cross is the most irreligious object to find itself within the heart of any faith. I've called the message this week scandal because the cross is so offensive that not even God himself permitted it in his Old Testament law. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 20, 21, 23, it, he expressly forbids the displaying of a body on a tree, which is a reference to crucifixion. The word scandal links directly back to a New Testament Greek word, skandalon, which is from Galatians 5.11 and other places, and it means a pitfall or a stumbling block. The cross is a stumbling block and a pitfall, not just because uh, it was such an offensive means to kill someone, but, and not just because it was used to kill God's son, but also because, as Paul is trying to communicate, it's the very last thing anyone would use to have for a faith. 
Uh, Fleming Rutledge has written an excellent book of, from which this image is the front cover. It's called Understanding the Crucifixion of Jesus. And she says that the cross is irreligious precisely because no human being, as a group or collectively, would have ever thought to project their hopes and wishes and longings and needs onto a crucified man, which is what we do as church, isn't it? We come to church and we say, yeah, we believe in the cross of Jesus and it does all these things. And in future weeks, we're going to unpack some of the things that it does. Today's message is not to be taken by itself, nor last week's. But I want us to just pause a minute this week and realize just the shock and the scandal of what was done to the Son of God. The cross, without question, is the most counterintuitive, harsh, degrading, and humiliating object and process ever invented. And the fact that people put the Son of God on it is a total and utter scandal. And yet, yet, in some incredibly mysterious, godly, counterintuitive way, the fact that God allowed it and that Jesus obeyed his Father God in asking it of him, if you remember, he kind of asked about it and tried to get out of it in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane and then obeyed God in going to the cross. Somehow, that confronts in all of us our worst selves head on. Somehow in Jesus going there, it confronts the worst of us head on. And it meets the worst of us head on. Turn with me for a moment to Matthew 13, verse 24, on your devices or in your Bibles. I want to switch tack slightly to a parable that Jesus teaches and suggest an insight about this parable that maybe you haven't thought of before. And it speaks directly to the cross, the nature of the cross. Um, from verse, 30, verse 24 of Matthew 13 onwards, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds, weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And jumping down later in Matthew 13 uh, to verse 37, just moving on down the text there, he answered, because Jesus' disciples asked him what the meaning of this was. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, we often read this parable and a standard interpretation of it is, hey, I, I think I'm the good seed. I'm the wheat. You know, I'm, I'm not the weeds. I'm not like those guys over there. And all I have to do is I have to keep my gaze on Jesus and keep my relationship with him right. And at the end of the age, 
uh, Jesus and the angels will sort, sort that out. And those bad people that I've had to kind of rub alongside in my life, they will, they will kind of be dealt with by God. And then me as a good person, I'm hoping I'm going to get to go in the barn of heaven. You know, that's what we say to ourselves, isn't it? And that's a right and proper interpretation of that, of that uh, scripture. And Jesus brings that interpretation himself. We, we would be unwise to ignore that. He's told us what the meaning is. However, I want to suggest to you another meaning in that parable that, that lurks in there, that's like a warning to us, that's like a, a, a kind of a prompt for us. What about, and, and this, is, this is a scandalous idea, and I use that word deliberately today because we're talking about the scandal of the cross. What about the possibility uh, that, that the mixed up roots is actually a picture of our own capacity that is always present during our human life to do the wrong thing, to act in a wicked way, to do evil? What if the parable of the wheat and the weeds is not a picture of two separate different kinds of people, as if we've traditionally read it, but in fact it's a picture of two different kinds of natures that are at war on the inside of us as individuals, as one person, and that they're fighting for supremacy. One of you is about to betray me, says Jesus at the Last Supper, and we all say, surely not I, Lord. And when we do that, we look on the inside of ourselves and go, would I do that? And we know from our Last Supper series and looking at that episode that Judas did, and Peter did as well, but not quite so much. And then the other disciples did as well, but, but maybe less so, but they ran away. Maybe the scandal of the cross is more than the fact that humanity put the Son of God to death. Maybe it's more than just being the most horrendous and degrading way for someone to die. Maybe it's more than a stumbling block and a pitfall because it's the last thing we would ever, ever invent to have a, have a religious faith around. Maybe the scandal of the cross is that there is a fault line running down the middle of each of us, a capacity for good and a capacity for evil, and they live alongside each other. And despite all the holiness and sanctification from God we could ever want through Jesus, from the Holy Spirit, from God's Word, from the church, from our friends who believe in Jesus too, the capacity to do wicked things never really fully departs from us this side of eternity. We are mixed up with the evil in our roots. It's what we grow up from. I'm going to ask the worship team just to come back up right now. Thank you, Kevin. Perhaps what, what, part of what makes the cross so scandalous is that what put Jesus on it exists inside all of us. And it's intrinsically tangled up in who we are and that we had better watch out and we had better take dominion over it, otherwise the cross could be the result. What I'm saying is that we all have the capacity to do dreadful things on the inside of us, and we need to treat that with the utmost of respect and caution because it's there. And Jesus gives us all the help in the world to step away from it, but we need to remember it's there. And we'd be very ill-advised to pretend it isn't there, because it is. Would you stand with me? There's a couple of responses I want to bring this morning, or this afternoon now. Two responses that I think are appropriate to, and it's a strong message on the cross today. Two responses I want us to, want us, uh, to consider. These are brave responses, and I commend you for considering them if you are going to consider them today. 
The first response would be, I myself have received or been on the receiving end of some terrible treatment by other people. I am myself the recipient of massive injustice. I'm not saying it's like up there with Jesus on the cross, but I know what it feels like to go through a very, very unfair situation. Now, I'm not asking you to invent trauma. I'm not asking you to manufacture something that hasn't happened. But if you're someone that has been through something horrendously unfair in your life, we're not going to ask you to explain that, or we're not going to call you out for it, but I'm going to ask you to come forward and to give that to Jesus on the cross today. You may have given it to him many times before, but I'm going to ask you to do it again. Bring it to Jesus on the cross, because he's, from his position on the cross, he is the only person fully qualified to be able to receive it from you. He stands alongside you in the injustices that you've navigated in your life. And he says to you this morning, I identify with you. I am with you in the difficult thing that you have faced. The second response is an even more brave response. And actually, it should include every one of us in the room, but I'm going to leave that to your judgment. And the second response is, Lord God, I am painfully conscious of my sinful nature. And today, I want to make a stand against it, and I want to declare that I am incredibly aware of it, and I know that I could do wrong stuff. I know that I've got a wicked streak in me. I know that I have to fight daily to stay on my toes, to stay away from temptation. I know how bad I can be and how bad my behavior can get. And today, I'm making a declaration that I don't want to go there, and I need your help and your strength to make sure I don't put you back on the cross again. Kevin and the team are going to lead us in some worship. And if you just want to come down the front quietly and tell Jesus about your cross experience or identify with his cross experience, then that is absolutely appropriate for for you to do that. And I'm going to do it myself. And then we're going to respond at the end as well. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, team.